Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew 7? That's actually the first passage we're going to be looking at uh, together in just a moment, besides the one on the front of the bulletin, which I'll actually refer to uh, before that. You know, with a subject as, an in, as intimidating and confusing as death, many people turn to humor to try to deal with the reality of death. I like how one guy described, he said uh, that when he died, he would like to die like his grandfather died. And then he explained thus, he said, grandfather didn't complain or protest. He just closed his eyes and went to sleep. That's the way I would like to die, not protesting and shouting like the three people who were riding in his car with him. Now, kids are often humorous without even trying, um, like these kids who were asked for their thoughts on death and dying. One of them responded this way, heaven is a nice place to go, but nobody is in a rush to get there. <laughs> Another kid uh, bravely said, I'm not afraid to die because I'm a Boy Scout. This was an insightful comment by this child. He, uh, he or she said, uh, doctors help you so you won't die until you pay their bills. <laughs> and then this very sensible uh, comment. When you die, they put you in a box and bury you in the ground because you don't look too good. <laughs> and then finally, one child said, only good people go to heaven. The other people go where it's hot all the time, like Florida. <laughs> so I guess if, someone, if you get real mad at somebody, you can tell them to go to Florida. I don't know. So. Many years ago, a court jester uh, in the Middle East uh, used his quick wit to try to buy some more time on this earth. For a long time, this court jester, this is centuries ago, had, had served the caliph of Baghdad and his court. And his job was to, when they were down or discouraged or, or something like he would just come in and say and do funny things to, uh, to humor them and amuse them, whatever they, they, he was called upon. But one day in a moment of thoughtlessness and carelessness, he had displeased his ruler. And as is often the case in those settings, his ruler ordered that he be put to death. However, said the caliph, in consideration of the merry jests that you have told me all these years, I will let you choose how you are to die. Well, the quick-thinking jester said, Oh, most generous caliph, if it's all the same to you, I choose death by old age. <laughs> you know, we likely will not get to choose the time and method of our death. But do you realize that we do get to choose where we will go when we live here. Every one of us gets to choose. But until then, we remain in a spiritual and mental battle with the evil one, the devil, who loves to distort God's teachings. So let's look at some, first of all, of Satan's conspiracy theories about what follows death. And I think they're exactly like that. They are conspiracy theories that Satan has thought up and put in people's brains to confuse what the Bible says about death. Well, the first is the one that actually comes from the title of the message, what we'll call lights out. All right, that's Satan's first conspiracy theory. And uh, the, a theological term for this is annihilation. Or the, the, and the idea here is that when a person dies, whoever they, are, whoever they are, they cease to exist. It's the end, uh, total destruction, they're gone, nothing else happens after that. They're dead and that's it. Lights out. 
Now, this actually has two versions. One version says that this happens to every person, that every person, once they die, they're just gone and that's it. Now, another group of annihilists say that it just happens to the wicked. Now, the good people go to heaven, and then everyone else just is annihilated, ceases to exist, lights out. I'm amazed that very few hold to either of those positions um, for the most part. So I've actually listed a number of others, and that's why I had the or in the title today. Uh, here's another conspiracy theory of Satan that I think uh, is, is, has been popular through the ages, and I'm calling this one Time Out. And that is the doctrine of purgatory. And the idea of purgatory is that those who are unfit to heaven after they die will go to a temporary place of torment and punishment where they are purged of their wickedness. Purged, purgatory, that's where the term comes from. And then eventually they get to go on to heaven after being purged properly. Uh, and then <laughs> what became controversial through the Middle Ages was um, that the established church at that time, uh, said that you could speed up that process of getting your loved ones out of purgatory if you paid enough to the church or if you prayed enough. It's called indulgences. It's one of the things Martin Luther fought against in uh, 1517 and following. Purgatory. Time out. Well, a third uh, conspiracy theory of Satan about what happens after we die, I'm, entitled, <laughs> I'm calling this one, I'm trying to have a little parallel here, out, on, out, on, out, on. <laughs> In other words, lights out and then they're back on. Lights out and then they're back on. Lights out and then they're back on. This is the Hindu conspiracy theory of reincarnation. And the idea there in the Hindu teaching is that every living being at the time of death is then reborn in a different form, either higher or lower, depending on how they lived, whether as a human being or an animal or, or whatever. And from that state, he or she will be reborn again and again and again and again and on, off, on, off, out, on. <laughs> Lights out, then on again as something else, be it a person or an elephant or a cow or a rat. Reincarnation. There's a fourth that I will, it doesn't follow my other pattern here, but another conspiracy theorist theory of Satan after we die, is uh, to borrow a phrase from Willie Robertson of Duck Dynasty, happy, happy, happy. <laughs> and here the idea is that everybody, when they die, goes to heaven. And I am convinced that there is a majority plurality of Americans who believe this. And you can tell because, in, in, some, in some context, this phrase can be fine, but we use the phrase, he's in a better place, she's in a better place, at the funeral visitation or whatever, and that is very true in some cases, and it's not true in some other cases. But a lot of us like to think that whoever we say that about, that is true. Happy, happy, happy. Then I've added a fifth since I typed the outline on, uh, on Friday, and that's what I'm calling way out there. All right? This is a fifth conspiracy theory of Satan of what happens after we die. Way out there is simply the very sick fascination right now in America with zombies. Very sick. <laughs> fascination. Listen, Satan wants to introduce any idea that can draw people away from God's truth and his eternal plan for us. And the result of all these different theories, these conspiracy theories that Satan has come up with to counteract the truth of God about death, the results are things like emptiness and uncertainty and fear and hopelessness or even in some cases a false hope as we approach death. 
So what does happen after we die? Well, obviously, I have not yet died physically, but I do know someone who did, and he's also watched millions of others during and after death, and his name is Jesus. Jesus has been there and done that when it comes to death. So I want us this morning to allow him to tell us what happens when we die. <laughs> Let's let, allow Jesus himself to describe the afterlife for us. There's also one other verse about him, and this is not his words directly, the words from the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 9 that are on the front of your bulletin this morning. This one summarizes very well the uh, rest of what we're going to say. It says, just as man is destined to die once, all right, reincarnation is out the window. We die once. And after that, to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We see in those two verses in Hebrews 9, the facts about death, and also God's solution for every one of us when it comes to death. And frankly, I'll take that any day over Satan's crazy conspiracy theories. So here's the deal. Main point number two on your outline. There are two possible eternal destinies following death. There are two. See, the basic order, no matter who it is, goes like this. We live our earthly life, we physically die, and then I, I take from Luke 16, the story Jesus told, uh, that there's a temporary place then we go. It's either good or bad, but it's not all the way the full, fullness of what will be eternally. But then there's judgment, and then there's punishment or reward. Six of Jesus' parables speak of this process and of the two alternatives. Two alternatives. I've asked you to turn to Matthew 7. This is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he's very blunt. He gets more blunt toward the end about the future. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I think it's interesting that the very next phrase in Jesus, out of Jesus' mouth is verse 15. He says, watch out for false prophets. So Jesus says, there are two alternatives when we die. Now, don't anybody tell you otherwise, is what he's saying in verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. Matthew 25. We'll be here a couple times today in the message. Verse 31 through 34, Jesus describes it this way. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then jump on, jumping on down to verse 41, he talks to the others. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says there is an eternal kingdom and there is an eternal fire. Two options. 
Mark chapter 16, one of the last things Jesus said before returning to heaven in verses 15 and 16. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Salvation or condemnation? See, Jesus was clearly declaring to all of us, you have two options. Not seven, not 20, not three. You have two options. There's a story in Luke 16. We're not going to take time to even go there today from verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Fascinating account about two people that died and went to those two intermediate states. And Jesus makes clear there are two destinations and there is an impassable gulf in between those two destinations. Luke 16. You see, once we die, our eternal destiny is determined. But the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God is that as long as you and I are still alive in this life, we can change the road we're on. We can still do something about our eternity. There are two alternatives. And we must decide. We must decide which of those alternatives we want. On point three, you see the first of those choices. And that is the Bible clearly teaches that there is a destiny called hell. And we must avoid it. I'm convinced that one of the greatest evidences of the love of God is that he clearly warned us in the Bible about a place called hell. See, it's the same as it is loving to label a bottle of poison as poison. It's a loving thing because we're saying, I don't want you to touch this. Don't drink this. It could kill you. So a loving person warns someone of dangers. We do that all through society. God loves us and he says, I want to warn you about one of the eternal destinies. So what did Jesus say about hell? First of all, point A, Jesus said that hell is factual. All these are going to start with an F. <laughs> it's a preacher thing. Hell is factual. Hell is a real thing and a real place. The New Testament word that's translated from the Greek into English as hell is the word Gehenna. And it actually is taken from the, well, a place outside Jerusalem at that time called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was that dreadful place outside the city where the rotting, stinking rubbish was taken. And it was also a place where pagan child sacrifices had taken place in the Old Testament. This was a place of death and waste and filth. And since everyone around Jerusalem and in Israel would have known, been familiar with that terminology with the Valley of Hinnom, Jesus used that term to describe what hell is like. Now the word hell, Gehenna, is used 12 times in the New Testament. Here's your Bible question for the day. Who do you think, out of every person who ever wrote or spoke in the Bible, said more about hell than anyone else? Was it one of those... Old Testament prophets, you know, they always seem to be so negative and a lot of their warnings and things like that. Was it one of them that said, to, said hell the most? Was it John the Baptist? You know, he seemed kind of negative at times in his messages. No, you know who said more about hell than anyone else? It was Jesus Christ. Twelve times the word hell is used in the New Testament. Eleven of them were from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. So you see, if there is no hell, then Jesus was either a liar or he was mistaken. 
And either way, that's a huge problem. If there is no hell, then Jesus voluntarily died to save us from a place who, that doesn't even exist. And that's the height of silliness. <laughs> Matthew 10, Jesus said one of his most direct statements about hell. In verse 28 of Matthew 10, he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell hell. Jesus said hell is factual. It is very real. But also point B, Jesus said that hell is fearful. It is a place that we ought to fear. Listen to some of Jesus' descriptions. Matthew 13, Jesus is in a series of, of several parables, and in verses 41 and 42, toward the conclusion of one of those, he's explaining what the parable meant. It says this, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus describes hell as fire and as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 49 and 50, he ends the next parable, saying this, virtually the same thing with a description that goes like this. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll tell you what, as a kid who grew up in the church, that phrase got my attention. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I hated going to the dentist. I had one of those dentists that was old-fashioned that wouldn't even numb you for cavities. And he would literally drill up in there and it would get up in the gums and I'd be going like this, you know. It was awful, awful. And I, to this day, I hate going to the dentist. And, and I, I kept thinking, I have no idea what gnashing of teeth means, but I, I don't want my teeth gnashing, you know. If it's anything like that guy drilling up into my gums and, and you know, all that pain and agony, I don't want anything to do with it. But Jesus said, that's what hell's like, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13, he describes it as a place of darkness. So I guess in that sense, we could say lights out. <laughs> repeats that in Matthew 25, repeats it in Matthew 8. Jude, the brother of Jesus, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 13 in his letter later on, talks about those for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Darkness. Matthew 25, 41 describes it as eternal fire. Revelation 20, verse 15 calls it the lake of fire. Mark 9, 47 and 48, Jesus says, it talks about hell where he says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, sin has terrible consequences. Hell is fearful. But you know the worst thing at all about hell? You know the worst thing of all about hell? It's away from God. It is completely away from God. You see, when, G when Jesus in John 14, we're going to look at that in a few minutes, described heaven as my Father's house, Jesus was implying that if heaven is the Father's house, then God's not at the other place, hell. And that's explained very clearly and very strongly in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, where it says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction, and notice this phrase, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Away from God away from God's influence. Do you realize that you and I have never been to a place on this planet where it's been completely away from God? Because we live in a world that he created. 
And we, our, our, our bodies and, and our planet is warmed by a sun that he created. And, and, and through the years, the Bible has had an impact on society and taught morals and Christian values that have positively affected us around us. But we're talking hell where all that will be removed. God will not be there and nothing related to his, his, his influence will be there. Hell is fearful. Hell is horrible. But point C, hell is forever. Now, to me, when you combine hell is fearful and hell is forever, that's pretty chilling. Matthew 25, verse 46, uses the word eternal. And that's the same word used to describe eternal life in heaven, but it's used to describe eternal punishment. The same word used in the book of Revelation to describe God living forever and ever is used to describe the punishment of the wicked forever and ever. Literally, the translation is, unto the ages of the ages. The Bible plainly teaches that hell is not a temporary reform school or a second chance, but an everlasting eternal punishment because Jesus himself said so. That brings us to point D, and it's going to get better soon. <laughs> Hell is for, and I've got a dot, dot, dot on your outline. Maybe that got your attention and got your curiosity up. The question is, who is hell for? Who did God create hell for? Well, Matthew 25, verse 41 says that God created hell for the devil and his angels. You see, I say, it was not originally created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his demons. But Satan, knowing that he has been defeated by God, wants to drag as many of us to suffer with him there as possible. And because of that, hell is now also for the unrighteous and the unforgiven and those who have lived apart from Jesus in this life and those who have not accepted God's grace through Jesus Christ. Those whose names are not in the book of life, Revelation 20, verse 15. Great teacher and author Denver Sizemore put it this way. Jesus said that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Hell was not prepared for man. If man goes to hell, he will go because he has followed Satan to his home instead of following Jesus to the Father's house. Our choice. Our choice. <laughs> Best way to illustrate this choice thing is from a story that something that took place in the United States Senate many, many years ago when Calvin Coolidge was the vice president of the United States and as such was presiding one day over the Senate. Well, as is still the case when people on the different sides of the aisle argue a lot, one senator angrily told another senator to, quote, go straight to hell. Well, the offended senator complained to Calvin Coolidge as the presiding officer, like he was wanting him to do something about the guy telling him to go straight to hell, and Coolidge looks up in the papers he's been leaving through and says, I've been looking through the rule book. He goes, you don't have to go. <laughs> Isn't that the glorious message of Christianity? <laughs> we don't have to go to hell. Because of Jesus' death for us on the cross and his glorious, decisive victory over death, we don't have to go to hell. Someone can tell you or me that on the street every day and we don't have to go. There is a destiny called hell. 
and we must avoid it. Well, there's good news. And that is your fourth main point on there. There is a destiny called heaven. I want you to turn to John 14. We're going to look at just a few of the verses there. I am so glad I can talk about this too. That there is a destiny called heaven and we must live for it. In other words, live with that goal constantly in mind and live with heaven's perspective and priorities. So what do we know about that destiny called heaven? Well, again, we look to Jesus to tell us. First of all, we know, point A, that it is a place. It's an actual place. He says, starting in verse 1 in John 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. See, it's where you want us. Jesus referred to heaven as an actual place, not a mere mystical, spiritual experience. It's a place. Point B, it's also a prepared place. We just saw that in the text. I go to prepare a place for you. Years ago, there's a famous songwriter named Keith Green who actually was killed in a very tragic accident very young, but he had made the comment one time how God had created the heavens and the earth in, in just six days. And then he said this. He goes, can you imagine what heaven will be like? He's been working on heaven for 2,000 years. <laughs> now, I, I know and you know that Jesus can speak the worlds into existence. He can speak heaven into existence. But I like that image of God preparing that place for us. The last two chapters of the Bible try to describe a beauty that is indescribable in human terms of what heaven will be like. It's a place being prepared by our Father that is unaffected by the corruption and pollution of this world. It's like that great philosopher Dennis the Menace in his comic strip said to his friend Joey. He goes, the way I figure it, heaven's a place where there is no soap or vegetables or corners to sit in. I don't know about that, but it's a place God's preparing for us. Thirdly, point C, it's a kingdom place. A kingdom. Matthew 25, 34 talks about the kingdom prepared for you. Matthew 13, 43 says the same thing. What a privilege it is to be a part of the kingdom of God right now. The church is the kingdom of God. But heaven will be the kingdom of God in all its fullest sense with King Jesus ruling in all his glory and majesty in person. It's a kingdom place. Point D, Jesus says that heaven is a place of purity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus remarked in Matthew 6.20 that there would be no rust and no thieves who will break in and steal there. Folks, I don't have to tell you, this world's often sickening. Physical trash, moral pollution, disgusting evil, but not in heaven. Not in heaven. The one who causes all that filth in this life will have already been destroyed. So Revelation 21 says there is no night in heaven and there's no need to lock the gates and there are no thieves. There'll be no vandals. There'll be no murderers. We'll be rid of it all. Revelation 21, 27 says nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. A place of purity. But also it's a place of fellowship. 
Matthew 8, 11, Jesus gives an, an amazing picture of the future kingdom of God. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. From all over this earth, Revelation 7, 9, pictures from every tribe and tongue and language and people. And nobody is going to have to eat and run. Don't you get frustrated with how fast-paced our society is anymore? We stop by to see someone or they invite us to every supper and boom, well, we got to go, got to go. We got to go to the next six places we got on our schedule today. We'll meet Christian people in heaven that we have only read about in newsletters from our missionaries. You ever thought about that? Most of the people that we have helped in those countries through our missionaries, we will never meet on this life. But someday we will. We'll meet people from Thailand. We'll meet people from Argentina and Brazil and Colombia and Honduras that we helped to get there by sending those missionaries to them. We'll meet Bible heroes like Moses. We'll have all the time in the world <laughs> to ask all these questions we've always had in this life uh, to people like Moses. I mean, what was it really like to see a bush on fire and it wasn't burning and all of a sudden a voice talks to you out of it? What was it like when they parted the Red Sea and the walls were, it was, the waters were standing up like waters? You know, could you see the fish in there? It was like an aquarium. Or <laughs> what about Elijah? Elijah, what was it like to not die? <laughs> I mean, what was it like for a chariot to come down and take you to heaven? We can talk to Jeremiah and Paul and David and Peter and Jonah and Ruth and Esther. And I can imagine the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, running around with a big grin on his face, telling everybody he sees, isn't this better than what I tried to describe in Revelation? <laughs> Words couldn't do it, could it? Imagine lifting our voices in uninhibited praise where no one is arguing over styles or habits of worship because we're simply focusing on God in his presence. We'll see our own Christian friends and relatives we got to enjoy the peace before we did. I read about an 80-year-old Christian who said, I got more friends in heaven than I do here on earth. <laughs> and now in my 60s, it's amazing how many people I know <laughs> who are already in the presence of the Lord. Place of fellowship. It'll be F, a place of life. Matthew 7, 14, when Jesus talked about those two roads, he goes, one of those roads leads to life. John 5 puts it this way in verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. I like that phrase, rise to live. Heaven will be life in its fullest, most beautiful sense. Forever, no leaving, no letdown, no end. Life. And finally, most importantly, heaven will be a place of God. What did Jesus say in John 14, 2? He goes, in my Father's house. You see, that's what makes heaven, heaven. <laughs> the fact that God's there. So we will be able to be in God's glorious presence with all the veils of this life removed. Face to face with Christ my Savior. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We will dance on the streets of, that are golden, the glorious bride and the great son of man. Wow. A place of God. A place fully in his presence. 
the destiny of heaven, we must live for it. Heaven and hell are real, no matter what Satan says. So we better get real and get ready. I want to close with a poem that I have used many times through the years here, but I think it's been a while. This poem is entitled, it's one word and it's a question, which. I think Lane's going to put that up there, which. Here's how it goes. Listen very, very carefully. There are two ways of beginning the day, with prayer or without it. You began today in one of these ways. Which? See, that's already one you and I can answer right now, how we began our day. It goes on. There are two ways of spending the Lord's day, idly or devotionally. You spend the Lord's day in one of these two ways. Which? There are two classes of people in the world, the saved and the unsaved. You belong to one of these two classes. Which? There are two great masters of men in the universe, God and Satan. You are serving under one of these masters. Which? There are two roads which lead through time and eternity, the broad road and the narrow road. You are walking on one of these roads. Which? There are two deaths which people die. Some die in the Lord, others die in their sins. You will die one of these two deaths. Which? And finally, there are two places to which people go. Heaven or hell. You will go to one of these two places. Which? It matters how we live. And it matters what choices we make in life every day. And it matters how we respond to God's offer of grace in Jesus Christ. And every one of us has had that chance. Every one of us has that chance right now. So I ask two questions at the bottom of your page. What are you living for? What are you living for? And where are you headed? I say to some in this room that only God and you know how to answer either of those questions. What are you living for? Where are you headed? See, what we're living for largely determines where we're headed. So every Sunday, we offer a time where each of us has an opportunity to look at ourselves in the mirror, honestly, and to look at God, honestly, and say, where am I in relation to God? And the amazing thing is that even though... We've all hurt him. We've all sinned. We've all done things we're ashamed of and should be ashamed of. God can take it all away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Whatever that sin is, whatever we've been, whatever we've done, that's grace. He says, I can take you. I want to take you home with me. That's why I told you about hell. That's why I warned you. That's why I died on the cross. That's why I took hell on the cross for you. So you wouldn't have to. So as we sing this song, and it's a reasonably new song, let's make this a time of us to just look at how we are either magnifying Christ in our life or not. And this is the time where today we can do something about our eternal destiny because of what Jesus has done for us. Consider our life, our heart, our relationship with God, and let's take whatever steps we need to take today uh, to be right with him.